All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I am back to standing on my own two legs. It feels great. Uh, all kinds. It's just been uh, it's been a journey the last couple of months. But glad to be back with you without broken limbs and all those kinds of things. So uh, excited as well to, uh, if you're new or visiting, to say hi, say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you, love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Becky was saying, uh, small groups in the summer are a great space and a great way to get plugged into the community, really low-key ways to just start to build relationships and get to know people. And so we'd love to invite you into those, and uh, you can fill out a connection card as one of the ways to, to find out more about small groups. So excited as well to continue our series this summer. Uh, we're spending our summer studying the attributes of God together. And an attribute, it refers to, the, to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to somebody. And what we see throughout scripture is that God's attributes, they, they define and describe who he is. They, they tell us about his nature and his character. And in other words, God's attributes, they, they tell us who he is and what he is like. And as we began our series, I said that the reason why it's worth us spending our whole summer thinking about the doctrine of God and who he is and what he's like, the reason why that matters so much is because what we believe always determines what we do. What you believe always determines what you do. Our behaviors, they are the tangible expressions of our beliefs. And nowhere is that more true in our lives than with what we believe about God. And so thinking about God's attributes isn't just some heady intellectual exercise that pastors and professors should spend their time doing. Instead, it's something that actually has real deep implications for our, each of our lives in a day-to-day -day real kind of way. And if we want to become the people that God's made us to be, then we need to behold and to believe the truths about who he really is and what he's like. And as we looked at the first attribute of God last week, we, we saw his limitless incomprehensibility. We saw how there's no one and nothing like the God of the Bible, that, that he is beyond our comprehension. He's outside our ability to completely, fully understand. And, and that's actually good news for us, because although we are limited, God's not. He's not constrained by time or space. His power, his knowledge do not have bounds, neither do his love and mercy. You see, but it's only when we behold and believe in God's limitless incomprehensibility, not our own, that we actually are able to become the people he made us to be. It changes us. You see, we don't like to believe that we have limits. We do everything we can to fight the limits that, that we run into every day. And so instead of revering God and his limitlessness, we try to rival him and be limitless ourselves. But the reality, as we saw last week, is that God alone is the one who has no limits. And it's only when we embrace that reality that we'll actually see ourselves rightly and to see him rightly, that, that he's God and that we're not. And that's actually good for us because in the midst of our limitations, we're invited to turn to a God who is beyond limits, a God whose strength never fails, whose understanding knows no ends, and whose loving nearness never leaves. And so while God's limitlessness often feels like hard to understand, while the idea that, that we can't fully wrap our minds around him sometimes feels unsettling, sometimes it feels like a little unnerving, that God's beyond our knowability in some ways— the reality is that it's good news because when we rely on our limited power and understanding or when we fashion a God who is limited like we are, all that does is make us anxious and fearful and worried. But instead, if we might rest in and rely on a God who knows no limits, then we'll actually have peace. 
because we can trust in the one who's sovereign and good. And so I hope what you saw in that first week, just I, I recap that because what I want you to see as we begin our series, right, is that what we believe about God, it changes the way we live. It's not just a heady intellectual thing, but it actually shapes our lives in real ways. And the same is true this morning as we're going to look at the attribute of God, his triune nature, the fact that, that God is three in one. And I don't know about you, but the idea of the Trinity, uh, that there's one God who exists as three persons, was something that kind of growing up, I filed away in the drawer of, sure, I believe that. Uh, I don't know, really know what that means or what the significance of that is, is in any way. And I certainly don't have any idea for how that impacts my life in any real way. And I was pretty much fine with that, right? Maybe you're like that. Maybe the, the Trinitarian nature of God is something you've just accepted, something that you've never really asked any questions about or tried to understand any further. Maybe you've even assumed that it's not something you're supposed to understand, that it's just like a mystery, that trying to figure any of it out is just pointless, so why bother, right? But I'm guessing that for others of you, the idea of the Trinity, this, this God who reveals himself as one God in three persons, that that actually may have been for some of you something that's been holding back your faith. And maybe you, you think that it doesn't make any sense, that it's not coherent, that you're not sure if you can believe in a God that you can't make sense of on your own. And wherever you're at this morning, I want to invite you to think deeply with me about a God who reveals himself as three in one. And as we do that, uh, what I want to show you is that while God's Trinitarian nature might not be something we're going to be able to wrap our minds around completely, it is absolutely something that is worth us pressing into and worth us seeking to understand more fully, not only because it is a central aspect of how God has chosen to reveal himself, but also because it's actually the key to making sense of so much about who God is and what he's like and how he's called us to live as his people. And see, God's Trinitarian nature isn't just some heady theological idea that doesn't matter. It's something that changes the way that we live in very real ways. I can't wait to show you that this morning. And my prayer for us as we think about some deep things this morning is that God might graciously keep showing himself to us and that we wouldn't just have our minds expanded, but that our reverence for him, our worship of him, would grow as well into lives that look like him. So let's pray, and we'll dive in this morning. So, God, thanks so much for our time together in your word, and thanks for gathering us on this Memorial Day Sunday. We're just grateful for you and grateful for the fact that we even have the freedoms to gather here to get together today, and we're so grateful for that. We don't want to take that for, for, for granted, God. And as we gather again this morning, God, to think about you and to uh, shape our understanding of who you are and what you're like, God, we just come with grateful hearts that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, that you're not trying to hide yourself from us, that, that you're not like playing some kind of game that we have to figure out, but you want us to know you. And so, God, we pray this morning as we study your word that you might be gracious to keep showing more and more of yourself to us, to help us to understand you more fully and more completely. God, and where our reason finds its limits, where our understanding of you reaches an end, God, we pray that you might help us to be characterized by a humble faith, that we might trust who you say you really are is true and good and that it changes us. And so, for any of that to happen, God, we need you. God, I don't have any power or ability or authority to do any of that. 
And so, God, I pray that you might use me for good and for your glory in our lives this morning as we see and behold and believe the truth about you so that we might become the people you've made us to be. And so we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I think uh, it's helpful to begin trying to talk about the Trinity by just being up front and saying it's hard, right? It is hard. Again, last week I spent the whole week trying to describe God's indescribability. That was tough too, right? <laughs> You see, it doesn't help that there's no one passage in Scripture where Moses or Paul or anybody else sits down and is like, all right, people, here's what you need to know about the Trinity. Let me lay it all out for you. There, there's no passage like that. In fact, the words Trinity or triune or Trinitarian, they're not actually words that are even found in your Bible, right? They're, they're not actually there. But while the words themselves may be absent, the idea that they articulate certainly isn't. You see, the, the word Trinity was coined by the early church in the late second century to sum up the way that the Old Testament, that Jesus, and that all of the New Testament writers refer to and talk about the plural nature of the one true God. You see, God's Trinitarian nature is something that's revealed progressively throughout Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, we get glimpses of this plural reality of God, whether that's through the words that are used for God, like Elohim or Adonai, which are in, by their very nature plural terms, or whether it's in the very beginning in Genesis 1 where we are introduced to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of creation, and where God refers to himself with the plural pronouns us and our, right? He says in verse 26, let us make mankind in our image. He's not talking about angels. He's talking about himself. And what we just get glimpses of in the Old Testament, we begin to see more clearly in the New Testament. The New Testament opens with the arrival of this guy named Jesus. Maybe you've heard of him. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, but he's not just a picture of God. Hebrews 1 goes on to say that he sustains all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is not just a picture of God, he's God himself. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus not only talked to God the Father, but he claimed to be God himself. That's the reason why he was put to death. And that he promises to send God the Holy Spirit to guide his followers after his ascension. And he backs all of those claims up by uh, doing things that only God could do, namely rising from the dead, right? That's a, that's a pretty God-related kind of thing. But Jesus doesn't just reveal the triune God in himself. He teaches us about who he is. He teaches us about this God who is three in one. In John chapter 16 and 17, Jesus talks about, he references the idea that, that he talked about the eternal glory that he has always had with the Father and this relationship of mutual glory and submission that he's had amongst the Trinity. And in Matthew chapter 28, he tells the disciples to go and to make more disciples and to baptize them, he says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you just take a minute, a detour to look at that, right? he, says, he doesn't say baptize people in the names of. He says baptize them in the name of. You see, for us, a name is a label, but in the Bible, a name refers to your very essence. It refers to your very being, who you are at the most core level. And Jesus is saying that we should be baptized into the name of a God who has one name, one being, one essence, and yet three persons. But it's not just Jesus that talks about the Trinity in the New Testament. The, the writers of the New Testament all reference this threefold nature of God. Peter addresses his first letter to the churches across the Roman Empire this way. He says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of 
of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul prays this, that out of the, his glorious riches, the Father might strengthen them with power through his Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. All over the New Testament, we see these references to a God who is both Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But while the references to God's Trinitarian nature are all over the Bible, even in the New Testament, what you, when you read it, what you find is that, is that the, the Trinity is never this central front-burner issue. It's this thing that's always in the background, that's undergirding and, and that's supporting all these other ideas that the New Testament writers are talking about. It's something that, that is assumed, but not necessarily something that is articulated expressly. Sam Alberry, one, one author and commentator, he says it this way, the Trinity is like a prominent city building. It's pretty much always in view, but most of the time it's not actually the thing that you're looking at. And so what happens is that most of the things that we learn about God's Trinitarian nature are things that we learn uh, on the back of other kinds of things. Again, like we talked about in, in Matthew 28, when Jesus is telling the disciples to go and make more disciples, the Great Commission, the Trinity, you can't really understand that passage without the Trinity, but the Trinity is not on the front burner of it, right? See, in the end, what the, what the Bible has to say about God's three-in-oneness, it can be summed up in the following way. Few, few brief statements here. The Bible can say about God's Trinitarian nature can be summed up this way. There is one God, Old Testament and New, all affirm this expressly. There's one God who simultaneously exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of which are fully God and all of whom have always existed as God. And their relationship with one another is one that is characterized by a mutual glorification and submission and love. And I don't know about you, but as you, as you sum that up, as I try to wrap that up into as concise of a, a description as I can, uh, it's still at least a little bit confusing, right? And one thing that might help a little bit is to, is to think of the Trinity in terms of who and what. Some commentators like to help to use this as a framework, right? When you think about people, people have one who and one what, right? As a, as, as a what, I am a person, right? But as a who, I'm branded. Maybe you're Hannah, like my wife, or Voltron, or whoever else you might be, right? Like there's, there's a who or a what, right? You have one who and one what, right? If you're a transformer, maybe you have two who's, right, or two what's and one who, right? Optimus Prime is both a truck and a robot, right? I don't really understand exactly all the things that go along with that, but anyways, right? But God is, God is a being who has one what, he is God, but he has three who's. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think that's helpful at least, but even then, just like we were talking about last week with God's limitless incomprehensibility, the Trinitarian nature of God is hard to understand. Whole centuries of church history have been devoted to like hammering out what does the Bible actually say about this reality, about God's Trinitarian nature. 
People also, they, they, all, they try to use all kinds of analogies to explain what God's, like they compare the Trinity to the different states of water, right? How there's a solid and a liquid and a gas form of water. Or, or like the parts of an egg that has a shell and the, the whites and the yolk. Or, or like the sun where you have the star itself and you have light and you have heat. If you want a good laugh that, that talks about some of those more, just Google St. Patrick's bad analogies and you'll have like three minutes of joy in your life, right? It's just... It's really fun, right? But the reality, as that hilarious little video points out, is that, that all the analogies that we use to try to describe God's Trinitarian nature, they all fall short. All of them are incomplete. They, they all fail to accurately describe the triune God, right? If the Father and Son and Spirit are like the states of water, then, then they're not actually three distinct persons. They're just different forms that God takes at different times. And we know that that's not right because at Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, we see all three members of the Trinity simultaneously present, right? Verse 21 through 22, we read that as Jesus was praying, heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and, and a voice came from heaven. That's the Father's voice. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So that analogy, like water, doesn't really work. It breaks down in some real ways. And the Trinity as well, it's not really like the parts of an egg either, right? If, if it was and the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all just partially God, not fully God. And yet we see in places like Second or Colossians chapter 2 that, that in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells. That he's not just partially God or part of God, that he is fully God in himself. And if the Trinity was like a star, then that would mean that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, like the light and heat that come from a, from a star, are creations of the star. Right? That, that they're not God themselves, they are creations of God by essence. And we see in Genesis 1 how the Spirit of God isn't part of creation, he's doing the creating hovering over the waters, maintaining all things, holding it together. And John chapter 1 and Colossians 1 both describe Jesus as the eternal creator God. Speaking of Jesus, the first verse of John says it this way, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. See, and so that analogy, it breaks down as well. You see, all the analogies that we use to try to describe the triune God, they all fail, they all break down, because what we're trying to do is use created things to describe the creator himself. It just doesn't quite work. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of existence. God's existence is far different from anything that we have experienced. It's far different from anything else in our universe. And so while the Trinitarian nature of God might be something we can apprehend, that we can have a conception of, it's not something that we might comprehend completely. It's not going to be something that we can entirely wrap our brains around. In the end, A.W. Tozer writes it this way. He says, The doctrine of the Trinity is a truth for the heart. Love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead, and we must, we must let reason kneel in reverence. And Tozer is not saying that we just need to chuck reason and chuck our intellect as we think about God or the Trinity. That, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that we can't let our reason be the limits that we set on God. Like a 3D cube in a 2D world, as C.S. Lewis once framed it, the Trinity will always be a bit outside our ability to comprehend. See, but that's not a reason for doubt. It's actually a reason for confidence. Who thinks that up, right? Who imagines a God you cannot comprehend? 
You see, and so where our reason finds its limits, we should bow in reverence to a God and allow our faith to flow from worshiping him. Instead of, instead of us proudly or skeptically standing in defiant rejection of a God who does not confine himself to our ability to understand him. You see, but just because we don't fully comprehend the, the Trinitarian nature of God doesn't mean it doesn't matter. In fact, what I want to show you this morning is that the very opposite is true. The very opposite is true. You see, the reality of God's three-in-oneness, it has deep implications for our lives. First and foremost is that it changes the very purpose of the universe itself. It changes the very purpose of the universe itself. A God who is unipersonal, just a one singular being, right? A God, that kind of a God might create a universe in order to get worship or servants or adoration or to be loved, right? When you look at the gods that humanity has created, that's what you see over and over again. Just read any of the Greek myths about any of the Greek gods. That's at the foundation of what all of them are after, but a Trinitarian God does not need any of that. He had it in himself already. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and in verse 24, he says it this way. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. He says, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. See, before the very foundations of the world, the triune God existed in a glorious and loving relationship with himself. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, all loving one another and glorifying one another. And what that means for us is that God did not create our universe in order to get glory and relationship and love or adoration or any of that. He already had all of that, but instead he creates our universe so that we might share in the love and glory that he has in and amongst himself. That foundationally flips the way we look at our universe. The previous verse, Jesus says the same. He, he says this when he prays in verses 21 and 23 of John 17. He says, he, he wants that all those who believe in him may be one, Father. He says, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they be in us so that the world might believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, what Jesus is doing in his prayer there is what we see is that he's, he's saying that the whole purpose of creation was not for God to get something more of himself. There, it was not because there was a lacking in God. But the whole purpose of creation is as an overflow of God's endless, infinite love and glory that he has amongst himself. And that reality, it changes us in some really profound ways, chief of which it means that as image-bearing imitators of God, that our chief purpose is not to gain power and glory for ourselves. It's not to gain power and glory for ourselves, but is to share in the joy and the glory and the love of the triune God by worshiping him. It fundamentally changes us. You see, 
God's overflowing joy and love flow from the members of the Trinity, endlessly loving and glorifying one another from eternity past to eternity future. And as Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, you and I are created to do exactly what they have done and to have the happiness and joy that they have. The only way that will happen is if God is at the very center of your life and if you give God glory above everything else. You will never be happy when you seek your own selfish interests and live for your yourself trying to get your own glory but only when you say to God thy will be done not mine and when you put God first and when you put your neighbor first you see at the very heart of God is this glorification of one of these members of the trinity and so for us to bear his image and to reflect him means that our highest goal might be to glorify him not ourselves it changes us And that leads us to the next implication because what we see is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're not endlessly seeking glory for themselves. Instead, they are endlessly seeking to glorify one another. We tend to think of God as someone who is selfish for glory, even rightly so, right? He is God after all. He probably deserves it. And in a sense, that's true. God is the only one who's worthy of of glory. But at the same time, what we see is at the very core of who God is, there is this unselfishness at the very center of God's nature. There is this other's orientation that even in the midst of the Godhead, even in the midst of the members of the Trinity, that the way up is down, the way that to joy is to seek the joy of others, the way to get influence is not to seek power for yourself, but to seek to serve the glory and the good of others. This is epitomized, as we see perfectly, in the person and the work of Jesus. The, the whole context of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 that I've been talking about, the whole context of that is the, is the impending shadow of his death on the cross. And in verse 1 of that passage, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about the hour of of his death on the cross. He says at the end of verse 1, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So important that you see what's going on there. You see, Jesus is not saying that his death on the cross is the means for which he gets glory. He's saying it's the means by which he gets to glorify the Father. That is so profound See, again, because we're made in God's image to reveal and to reflect who he is and what he's like, this other's orientation is at the very heart of our identity and purpose as people. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, For in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of, of all being. For Jesus gives himself in sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary. For when Jesus crucif- was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness. From the foundation of the world, he surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. What C.S. Lewis is saying there is that what Jesus was doing on the cross, is this, it's, the ex, it's the ultimate expression that we can see of what he's been doing for all eternity. He's been laying down his own glory for the glory of the Father and the Spirit. He's been laying aside it. And when we might choose to lay down our rights and our power in an effort to serve and to care for the good of others and the glory of God, what we are doing is imitating the very essence and nature of what God is like. It's not just a command that God says, do as I say, not as I do. It's at the very heart of who he is as a Trinitarian God. 
And when we do that, we are being who God has truly made us to be. We're not becoming less of ourselves when we lay down our rights and, and, and privileges and power. We're becoming more of who God says we have always been made to be as his image bearers. Conversely, the more selfish we become, the less like God we become. Selfishness is fundamentally at odds, not just with the way God tells us to live, but with his very nature itself. It's so important to see that. But it's as well important that you see in the midst of the Trinity is that, like I said before, the, the members of the Trinity do not demand glory from one another. Instead, they, they, they willingly submit, each member of the Trinity willingly submits to one another, showing uh, that doing that and sacrificially serving and submitting to others, that that is not a degrading thing. In John chapter 16, when Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit glorifies him by telling us only what Jesus tells him to say, or when in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus submits to the Father by saying, not my will, but yours be done. When, if those things are not degrading to, the, to God himself and to the persons of the Trinity, then the ways that God calls us to sacrificially submit to one another, they're not degrading either. See, God's given us all different roles to play, different ways that we reflect his image, whether that's through the varying gifts and opportunities he appoints and empowers for us to serve him and one another in the midst of the church, or the varying roles that he gives us as men and women to play within marriage and within the context of sexual intimacy. And when we might gladly choose to play the roles that God gives us and to sacrificially prioritize the good of others and the glory of God, again, we are not becoming less of our true selves. We're becoming more truly who God's made us to be. You see, we live in a world that tells us that your highest good, the ultimate goal, is that you might be true to yourself that you might live for your own good, that you can serve others and that's great, but if that costs you yourself, then it needs to get put aside. But at the very heart and essence of God, what we see is that we become truly ourselves, who he's made us to be, when we lay down who we think we are so that we might become who he's made us to be. That's such good news. That changes us, church. And when we gladly choose to play those roles, we're, we're becoming more of our true selves. And the same is true for community. You see, because God is three in one and we're made as his image, that means that community and relationship with others is not just an extra add-on if we have some time in our lives, but it is a central part of what it means to bear God's image and to reflect his nature. That's why loneliness and isolation are so painful, even for those who are introverted, because you have been made in the image of a God who is eternally in community. And that's why community is so important. You see, community, unfortunately for us, is hard because unlike God, we're marred by sin. The members of the Trinity have no sin in amongst themselves, and so there is a perfect loving relationship and community there. Our communities are full of sin, but that does not mean they are less essential. You see, that's one of the reasons why we place such a high emphasis on small groups here at River City. Well, if you've been around for any length of time, what you know is that we are not the programs church. 
There's not something going on down at this building every night of the week. There's not some new class for you to take every weekend. There's not some new event or some new program. And not to say that those things are inherently wrong or bad, but, but it's to say that, that we are intentional about not doing those things because what we really believe is that being in community and being in relationship with one another, that that's where real transformation happens in our lives. And that you actually have to have time and space to be in relationship with people. And that if we're endlessly doing all kinds of classes and, and all kinds of programs, and that actually takes you out of the thing that, that really helps you to bear God's image and to be transformed as he's made you to be. You see, community is good for you and it glorifies God whose image that you bear. Are you beginning to see, church, how deeply practical believing in the Trinitarian nature of God really is? It's not just some heady theological exercise. It really changes us. The way God's called us to live is his people characterized by love, a focus on others, by sacrificially caring for the good of one another. Those things do not make sense unless God is a triune God who, is, who his very essence is characterized by those things. That's Trinitarian nature. It makes sense of all of that stuff for us. It's the basis why that's not just a good idea or a wise decision, but why it's at the heart of what it means for us to bear God's image. It really matters. There's one last thing I want to draw out for you this morning, one more key way that beholding and believing in the Trinity changes us, and it's this, is that God's Trinitarian nature is the very foundation for our lives lived on mission with him. It's the very foundation of it. See, just as the mission of each member of the, each person of the God is to glorify one another, and just as the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit to accomplish His glory in our world, so too our mission is to glorify Him. And Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. But our mission is not one to just endlessly gain robotic drones for a narcissistic deity. But it's one our mission is to call others into a life of sharing in the eternal love and joy and glory of the triune God by worshiping and enjoying him. That's at the heart of our mission, church. And the Trinity is at the heart of that purpose. You see, it's God on mission to us that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. See, Jesus is God on mission to us, sent by the Father to rescue and redeem us from our sin through his sacrificial death on the cross. And it's his work accomplished for us that is brought to fruition in us by his Spirit. And so the very Trinity is at the very heart of our redemption. And so communion is not something that makes us right with God and it doesn't save us, but instead the Bible is clear that, that faith alone in the person and the work of Jesus on our behalf is what does that. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember the triune God laying down his own glory for our good and in doing so, showing us the way to actual glory and life in and of itself. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, and then, or, or you do for the first time this morning, then what I want to encourage you to do is to, during our time of worship is to go back and take communion. There's tables on the left and the back, on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice and take communion back that way as you see fit whenever you feel during our time of worship. But, but if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in God, 
if there's things that are holding you back from trusting him, I just want you to know how welcome you are here in this church, how your questions are welcome, whether it's about the Trinity or any other part of God. And your process is welcome here as you figure out what it means to who he is and what it means to follow him. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. See, God's not after rich, religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, God, you are the one true God. And even if I cannot comprehend you entirely, I will bow my knee and worship to you wholeheartedly. And there's life there that you cannot find anywhere else. And so I want to invite you into that. Wherever you're at this morning, as we sing and as we worship God and remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. How does beholding and believing in his Trinitarian nature need to keep shaping your own life? For some of you, maybe it's this reminder that you need to keep replacing the pursuit of power and your own glory with the pursuit of a sacrificial love for God and the good of others. Not because it's a wise thing to do, because that is who you have been made to be, and that's the one way you actually find life and joy. Maybe for some of you, it's the reminder that you need to prioritize community. That small groups and being a part of a church, not just showing up, that that's not, that's not just like a good idea, that's not just like this kind of add-on if you have some extra time, but it's good for your heart. It's part of what it means to reflect the God whose image that you bear. And that's a process, right? Diving into community, especially one that's not perfect, right? Ours isn't perfect. And that's a process, and that's hard. But God wants you to keep pressing into that. So maybe there's a next step he's inviting you to take with that. Maybe the Trinitarian nature of God needs to shape the ways that you think about the roles God's invited you to play, whether that's in our church or in your marriage or wherever it might be. Or maybe it's this reminder that it's the triune God sent on mission to us that's the foundation for our heart of mission as we join him. Church, my heart this morning is that, is that as the Godhead seeks to endlessly glorify one another, that we might join in that, both now and for eternity, as we live for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, thanks so much that you are a God who is three in one. God, there is no one and nothing else like you. No one's created you. No one's made you up. All the other gods that humans have created, they don't compare to you at all. You are unique. God, and we ask that even though your three-in-oneness is hard to understand, it is difficult to wrap our minds around completely, we might, God, I pray that you might help us to see it as good news. And that we, where our reason fails and where our understanding has limits, that we might joyfully turn in a humble reverence to you. And God, I pray that the areas of your Trinitarian nature that are hard for us to comprehend might not create in us doubt, but joy and worship and awe and reverence for you. God, and we pray as well that your triune nature might shape our lives as we live as you do for the glory of of yourself, the Father and Son and the Spirit, all glorify one another. Might we join in with that, reflecting your nature and character. God, we can't do that on our own. We need you to empower us to it. We pray you would. Amen.